Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Perfect Life for Imperfect People. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, February 13th, 2011. Choose Life. Just two little words from Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. They sound so simple. The Deuteronomist even says that the choice between life and death, blessing and curses, is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. The Apostle Paul makes a similar appeal to wealthy Christians in 1 Timothy 6:19. Take hold of the life that is truly life. And then there's Jesus who says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, John 10.10. 10. These words sound simple, but our human experience proves otherwise. After all, we're only poor creatures, now a wonder, a wonder tortured in the space betwixt this world and that of grace, George Herbert. And in the most mysterious book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, Koheleth describes his search for true life. He pursued all the obvious pathways, intellectual study, work, every imaginable pleasure, civic projects, and even righteousness itself. In the end, it all felt like chasing after the wind, a meaningless futility of futility. But living like mere mortals is precisely what Christians are called to transcend. In the epistle for this week, Paul chides the Corinthians for their jealousy and quarrels. Those are signs, says Paul, that they're living in a worldly rather than a spiritual manner. They're acting in an infantile rather than a mature way, he says, like mere men, 1 Corinthians 3, 1-9. Similarly, Jesus observes that there's nothing unusual about loving those who love you. No one should expect a reward for that sort of behavior. Even the tax collectors do that. That's like greeting a close friend or a family member. Even pagans do that. Matthew 5, 46 to 47. Jesus contrasts living like a pagan or a tax collector with living life in his kingdom. He gives five examples from the Old Testament. Murder, adultery, oaths, retribution, and treatment of your enemies. With each example, Matthew repeats the identical refrain five times. You have heard it said, but I say... Jesus says that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to broaden and deepen it from mere outward ritual or external compliance to an interior transformation. But any way you look at it, he's calling us to a way of life radically different from that of what Paul calls mere men, and even beyond the ethics of the Old Testament law. Instead of living like a pagan, Jesus demands perfection. 
Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5.48 Perfection for mere mortals? That sounds ideal, but isn't it impossible? Isn't the quest for perfection the voice of the oppressor? Doesn't perfectionism lead to self-righteousness, a need to be and to be seen as right? Doesn't it tempt us to edit our real but fallen selves and instead project a false and sanctimonious self to our own selves and to others? The former president, Jimmy Carter, was mocked for admitting in a Playboy interview that he struggled with lust in his heart based upon this gospel text. But that was just an honest admission that, like all of us, he was very far from perfect. The key to this conundrum is in Luke's parallel passage, I think. And I wonder if Luke was shocked by Matthew's prescription for perfection. Luke's shorter version of the same material makes several editorial changes. Whereas Matthew has a Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.1, Luke presents a Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6.17. But the most shocking difference is how Luke concludes the passage. In Matthew 5.48, Matthew writes, Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect which seems to be an echo of Leviticus 19, verse 2. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. But for his part, Luke makes a single but remarkable word change. In Luke 6, 36, he writes, Be merciful, just as your heavenly Father is merciful. No one can be perfect, but everyone can show mercy. And in showing mercy, we approach divine perfection. The novelist Reynolds Price of Duke University, who died just on January 20th, was an outspoken, if unorthodox, and non-church-going Christian. He once told the Georgia Review, quote, the whole point of learning about the human race, presumably, is to give it mercy. End quote. To live a life of divine perfection, show mercy to your neighbor. Showing mercy, both Matthew and Luke agree, is precisely what God does. He causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. He sends rain for the righteous and the unrighteous. God is kind to the wicked and the ungrateful. <clears throat> or consider Matthew's five examples. Divorce is understandable, at times even necessary. For some people, inevitable. But what might happen if spouses extended mercy to each other? Avoiding murder is not much to brag about, but moving from anger to mercy sure is. Retaliation is tempting, and retribution is part of our legal system, but mercy forgives and forgets. 
States and governments protect their self-interests by hating their enemies. But Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And here's an even more radical idea. Extend this divine mercy to your own self. For that's precisely what God has already done. Much of the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins 1844 to 1889, is characterized by darkness and despair, reflecting his lifelong interior struggles. Hopkins was born and raised in England, then educated at Oxford. After converting to Catholicism in 1868, which estranged him from his Anglican family, he promptly burned much of the poetry he had written and even stopped writing for seven years. After ordination as a Jesuit priest in 1877, an assignment in Ireland left him feeling isolated and melancholy, giving rise to his so-called terrible sonnets like the one, I wake and feel the fell of dark. But somewhere in his darkness, Hopkins experienced God's light. Somehow he moved beyond self-reproach to divine mercy. In one of my favorite poems by Hopkins, My Own Heart, he portrays an interior conversation about extending mercy to himself and accepting God's smile upon his own life. My own heart let me more have more pity on let me live to my sad self hereafter kind, charitable, not live this tormented mind with this tormented mind tormenting yet. I cast for comfort I can no more get by groping round my comfortless room than blind eyes in their dark can day or thirst can find thirsts all in all in all a world of wet. Soul, self, Come, poor Jack self, I do advise you, jaded, let be. Call off thoughts a while elsewhere. Leave comfort root room. Let joy sighs at God knows when to God knows what. Whose smiles not wrung see you, unforeseen times rather, as skies between mountains lights a lovely mile. On his deathbed with typhoid at the age of 44, Hopkins' last words, according to his biographer, were, I am so happy. I am so happy. I loved my life. That's the perfection of mercy in an imperfect person for which we should all hope. And now for further reflection, consider the poem by Edwina Gately. It's called, Let Your God Love You. Be silent, be still, alone, empty before your God. Say nothing, ask nothing. Be silent, be still. Let your God look upon you, that is all. 
God knows. God understands. God loves you with an enormous love and only wants to look upon you with that love. Quiet, still, be. Let your God love you. For books this week, I review a title by John Dominic Crossan. It's called The Greatest Prayer, Rediscovering the Revolutionary Message of the Lord's Prayer. New York, HarperCollins, 2010, 195 pages. The Lord's Prayer, or the Abba Prayer of Jesus, is, according to Crossan, a prayer from the heart of Judaism on the lips of Christianity for the conscience of the world. It's nothing less than a radical manifesto and a hymn of hope for all humanity in a language addressed to all the earth. That seems true enough, but Crossan loses me in the first pages of his book with his preconceived theological interpretation of the prayer. Whereas most people think of justice as retributive punishment, Crossan says that distributive justice, or the fair and equitable distribution of all good things to all humanity, is the sum and substance of the Lord's Prayer. He calls this enoughism. I agree that this is part of the gospel message, but I question whether that's the meaning of the Lord's Prayer. Many of Crossan's readings are strained to fit this template of nonviolent and distributive justice, like his insistence that the phrase, lead us not into temptation, means keep us from responding to Rome's violent domination with our own retaliatory violence. That is, we're not praying about violence against us, but violence by us. Or again, his interpretation that Jesus separated from John the Baptist rather than joined his movement was new to me. Or third, his categorical rejection of substitutionary atonement felt stale, and it ignored texts like Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter 2.24. Crossan seems to empty thy kingdom come from any divine eminence now or future consummation later. For him, the kingdom of God is about human collaboration today, not divine intervention either now or later, which of course seems to ignore Romans 8 and many other passages. Nonetheless, Crossan is a leading biblical scholar today, of course, and it's a pleasure to read a book by him that's intended for a general audience rather than for technical specialists. The form of the Lord's Prayer is poetic parallelism. The first three petitions concern the character of God, his name, his kingdom, and his will. The last three petitions focus on humanity, our daily bread, our debts, and temptation. Crossan is especially helpful when he digresses into the Greco-Roman context of the biblical literature or Old Testament backgrounds and connections. I enjoyed how he connected the Lord's Prayer with Paul's classic passage on prayer in, in Romans 8, We Don't Know How to Pray.
In sum, if this book helps you to pray the Abba prayer, then it will have been well worth reading. The author is John Dominic Crossan. The book, The Greatest Prayer, Rediscovering the Revolutionary Message of the Lord's Prayer. For film this week, we travel to France in a movie called Mademoiselle Chambon from the year 2009. Jean is a construction worker, and his wife Anne-Marie works in a book factory. This blue-collar couple might not be able to explain what a direct object is to their son Jeremy when they help him with his homework, but they enjoy a loving marriage. Anne-Marie is unfailingly cheerful. Jean is openly affectionate with Jeremy, his son. He cares for his 80-year-old father by washing his feet and hosting a birthday party. But beneath this placid surface, bit by bit and across the years, Jean has become emotionally distant. He meets his son's teacher, Mademoiselle Chambon, when he repairs a broken window in her home. There's no action in this film, except for the psychological turmoil that this encounter provokes. Their relationship is stilted and awkward, barely even acknowledged, but their mutual longing is deeply felt. Until the end of the film, it's never clear whether Jean will remain with his pregnant wife, Anne-Marie, in their predictable existence, or leap into the unknown with Mademoiselle Chambon. The movie is in French with English subtitles. Mademoiselle Chambon from the year 2009. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by John Donne, 1572 to 1631. It's Holy Sonnet 15. Wilt thou love God as he thee? Then digest, my soul, this wholesome meditation. How God the Spirit, by angels waited on in heaven, doth make his temple in thy breast. The Father having begot a Son most blessed, and still begetting, for he ne'er be gone, hath deigned to choose thee by adoption. Co-heir to his glory, in Sabbath's endless rest. And as a robbed man which by search doth find his stolen stuff sold, must lose or buy it again, the Son of Glory came down and was slain, us whom he had made and Satan stolen to unbind. T'was much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man much more. John Donne, Holy Sonnet 15. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 13th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.